Well, husband and wife went to one of those marriage conferences that unfortunately had a speaker who said, as he talked about the roles in marriage, that the husband was in charge and the woman was to be treated like a doormat. Now, as they got in the car after the conference and they were about to drive away, the husband turned to his wife and he said, what did you think about that speaker? And then feeling drunk with fresh power, he said, I loved it, didn't you? And she just sat there fuming silently. They drove home in silence and they got to the, the house and as they got out of the car, the woman started to head into the home and he said, whoa, whoa, where are you going? He said, I'm the leader. You're supposed to follow me. And so he gets in front of her and he goes in the house and walking through the door, he closes it and he turns to her and he said, I've been doing a lot of thinking. And he said, things are going to be like what that man was talking about around here uh, from here on out. Do you understand? And at that moment, he didn't see his wife again for about a week. And then near the end of that week, as the swelling went down in his black eye, he could just barely see her again. Now, since I don't see any black eyes this morning, I'm hopeful that as we began talking about what biblical submission was last week, that nobody here uh, took it in the way that I just described. If you missed last week's message, I'm going to ask you to go back and listen to it online because we don't have today uh, the time to unpack everything we talked about. But just in summary, you'll remember, men, that what we saw is the role of the husband is not to be a dictator, not to be this iron-fisted leader. Instead, what the Bible said is we are to be servant leaders. We are to be those, as we saw in Ephesians 5.25, who are husbands who love our wives as Christ loved the church. And today I want us to go back to that passage in Ephesians chapter 5, and we're going to be looking at Ephesians 5 verses 25 through 33 today, where God gives us further instruction on what his design for our home and our marriage is to look like. So I invite you to look with me in your Bible at Ephesians 5.25. It says, Husbands, love your wives just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her, so that he might sanctify her having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, that he might present to himself the church in all her glory, having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she would be holy and blameless. So husbands ought to also love their own wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ also does the church, because we are members of his body. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and, shall, uh, and mother and shall be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is great, but I am speaking with reference to Christ and the church. Nevertheless, each individual among you also is to love his own wife, even as himself. And the wife must see to it that she respects her husband. Now, if you look at the studies that have been done, the secular studies, what they have determined is that there are is a singular most important need for a woman and a man, and they're a little bit different. They're intertwined, but they're different. The number one need for a lady is to know that she is loved. To know that she's loved. And the number one need for a man is to know that he is respected. That he's respected. And God who designed men and women, God who gave us his manual, not only for our marriages, but for life, brings up these two uh, characteristics right here in the passage we're looking at today. Husbands are to love their wives as Christ loved the church, and women are to respect their husbands. Now, if you um, 
Think in terms of what this looks like in a marriage relationship. Last time we saw that if we follow God's design, it'll give us the blueprint on how to have a healthy and a happy home. And as we look at what God calls on us to do today to love one another, I want you to listen to a piece that's called The Seven Ages of the Marriage Cold. Uh, Because in it, we see an example how the love that was shown over the years by a husband to his wife um, changed whenever she was sick. In the first year of their marriage, the husband said, Sugar dumpling, I'm really worried about my baby girl. You've got a bad sniffle, and there's no telling how these things are with all this strep going around. So I'm going to put you in the hospital this afternoon for a general checkup and a good rest. I know the food's lousy, but I'll be bringing you meals from Rossini. I've already got it all arranged with the floor superintendent. Year two. Listen, darling, I don't like the sound of that cough. I called Doc Miller and asked him to rush right over here. Now you go to bed like a good girl, please. Third year. Maybe you'd better lie down, honey. Nothing like a little rest when you feel lousy. I'll bring you something to eat. Do I have any of that canned soup in the pantry? Fourth year. Now look, dear, be sensible. After you fed the kids, washed the dishes, and finished the floor, you'd better lie down. Year five. Why don't you take a couple of aspirin? Sixth year. I wish you'd gargle or something instead of sitting around all evening barking like a seal. Seventh year, for Pete's sake, would you stop sneezing? Are you trying to get me pneumonia? Now, through the common cold, we see something that um, is not quite as funny, is it? Which is a decline of what love and loving actions can look like in our homes. Husbands, I want you to stop and think for a moment about when you were first married and, and the way that you showed love to your wives. In fact, I want you to maybe go back a little before that to when you were dating, when you were trying to win your wife. What what were the things you did uh, to show her love? Did you uh, drive many miles to visit her? Maybe stayed up all night uh, just because you wanted to spend just an extra moment with her and it didn't matter how tired you were the next day when you went to work? What were the things that you did uh, to get to know her better? And to show her that you loved her. What about now? Is it an inconvenience to get up off the couch and walk one room over when she calls you? Ladies, what about you? When you were first married or when you were dating, what what did you do to show your husband that you loved him? How much time did you spend getting ready to go out on a date? Or were you excited just watching out the window, waiting for him to pull up to the front of uh, the place you were staying to pick you up. And what about now? Do you look at your watch and say, it's almost time for him to be home from work, or uh, I just can't wait to spend time with him? Now, I'm not telling you that uh, once we're married that we can uh, never not shave for a day or put on makeup or that you can't wear comfy clothes around the house. That's, that's not what I'm saying. But think in terms of what we communicate to our spouse when the only time they ever see us putting in a lot of effort for the way we look is when we're going to go out with friends or come to church or maybe go to work. What, what does that communicate to them? There was an old commercial out. It was advertising a, a, a dish you could buy in the store to cook at home. 
And one day, the, the husband, this commercial shows the guy coming in through the, the back door. He walks into the kitchen, and he sees this particular dish cooking on the stove. And he doesn't see his wife anywhere around, but he immediately seeing this, this dish uh, thinks, oh, oh, there must be company coming. I forgot. And so he runs upstairs. He gets out of his work clothes. He puts on a suit. And he, it shows him coming down the stairs, tying his tie. And then he sees his wife. She's sitting on the couch in an oversized shirt uh, with a bowl of this particular dish eating it. And she looks up at him and kind of smirks and says, wow, you're, you're really overdressed for dinner tonight. And what that commercial was communicating is this dish was so special that it's the kind of thing you only served when company was coming, right? It was playing off that tendency we have to do something extra special for others, but not for our own family. And I wonder how many of us do that. How many of us, when it comes to our spouse, still show that same level of love to our spouse as we once did? You know, men, it's not enough just to tell your wife that you loved her on your wedding day. You can't say, well, nothing's changed since then, and I'll let you know if it does. I mean, you can say, I love you. Uh, and, and it's not enough just to say the words. You have to demonstrate it. There has to be action that goes with it. Whenever we see God's love in the Bible, there's action uh, that's tied with it. Romans 5.8 tells us God demonstrated his own love toward us in this. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. John 3.16 tells us, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. Those words for love, the Greek word agape that is used there is an all-giving, self-sacrificing love. And it's the same word that we see here in Ephesians 5.25 when it tells us, Husbands, love your wives just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her. Men, do you love your wife enough to do that? Now, you may be sitting here saying, Roger, I do. If there was a, an attacker that suddenly came at my wife, I would throw myself between her. I, I would die for her. I'd take a bullet or a knife to protect my wife. And maybe you would. But when it says, husbands love your wives as much as Christ did, being willing to die for her, what God says to us often is not, I want you to cash it all in and at once in one glorious, heroic effort. Instead, what God does is he, it's like he gives us a $1,000 uh, check. He says, I want you to go to the bank and cash this. And don't get hundreds and fifties and twenties. I want you to get pennies and nickels and dimes and a few quarters and a few dollars. And what he says is, I want you to spend your life loving your wife as Christ did, pennies and nickels and dimes at a time. Little bits of sacrificial love. Ten cents when you sit with her. And you let her tell you how her day was when you'd rather be watching something on TV. It may be a nickel at a time where you're the one who takes care of the kids so your wife can get a break. It may be a dollar at a time where you uh, watch that chick flick rather than the oorah movie that you really wanted to watch. It's little bits of sacrifice, dying to ourselves daily in order to show our wives that we love them. As we give our lives, it's not always glorious. It's those little acts of love where we die daily to ourselves. 
There are many times that I have couples in my office who come to me and they say, uh, Roger, our marriage is in trouble. And as they're talking to me, they're not telling me about ways that they're dying uh, to self to serve the other one. What I often hear from a couple when they eventually end up in my office is, uh, our love has died. And we think it's time for a divorce. And as I hear that from these couples, I will say to them, why don't you tell me, define for me what love is. And I'll hear, well, you know, we we just don't have that feeling of love for each other anymore. I just look at my spouse and there's just this deadness. And what I'll do is I'll often turn to 1 Corinthians 13 and I'll have one of them read it for me. Because in 1 Corinthians 13, 4 and following, it's called the love passage in the Bible. It says, love is patient, love is kind, love does not take into account a wrong suffered. It goes on and on. It talks about how love never fails. And what I'll point out to the couple is uh, this isn't an adjective. It's not this emotion. You see, we define, we let the world define love for us as being that kind of warm, fuzzy feeling where we get those little butterflies when we think of the other person. But the Bible defines love as an action. Love is patient. Love is kind. Love does not take into account a wrong suffered. It clears the deck. It forgives the other person. And you see, what we do is we, we say, I just don't have this feeling of love anymore. And what God says is, if you don't have a feeling of love for the other person, then demonstrate a loving action which can reignite your love for the other person. It says, husbands, love your wives. It's a verb that requires action on your part. If love is failing in your, in your home, it's usually because one or both of you are failing to fulfill God's command to take action uh, toward one another. There was a man who came in to, to see his pastor, and he, he, he was thinking about divorce as we were just talking about, and, and the pastor said the, to the husband, the Bible says you're to love your wife as Christ loved the church. And the man said, that's just too much. I just can't do that. And the, the pastor went on to say, well, if you can't love at that level, then begin where God says, love your neighbor as you love yourself. And he said again, well, that's, that's just too much, pastor. And then the pastor said, well, the Bible says love your enemy. So start there. Are you loving your spouse as Christ loved the church? Are you loving your neighbor as yourself? The Bible says we're one flesh as husbands and wives, men and women. Do you love the other one as much as you love yourself? And if the best you can do is to love your enemy, then start there. That's what Christ did for us. Romans 5.8, remember, says God demonstrated his own love for us in this. While we were yet sinners... Far from God, an enemy of his, running from him and in rebellion, thumbing our nose at God and living the way we thought we should. It says Christ loved us enough to die for us, to go to the cross and give his life to save us, to pay that penalty of death. As we look at what the Bible calls on us to do here, it's speaking to the men first, because as we saw last week, the men are the the leaders in the home. So men, we are to lead in loving like this. It doesn't mean the wives are not also to love sacrificially. They are. But as we are the leaders, we have the responsibility to be those who show this love. 
Verses 28 through 30 tell us, So husbands ought to also love their own wives as their own bodies. He who loves his own wife loves himself, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ also does the church, because we are members of his body. You recall that earlier in Ephesians, Paul gave us the picture of how we as Christians are living stones built into the body called the church. And here what he's saying is the same thing. We're a living entity. Men and women are are living parts of the body as well, one part together. We talked last time as we looked at the creation order of men and women. In Genesis chapter 2, we see the the creation taking place. It says in Genesis 2, 23 and 24, When the woman was created, the man said, This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. For this cause, a man shall leave his father and his mother and shall cleave to his wife and and they shall become one flesh. This is what we see being quoted here in Ephesians 5.31. There was somebody who looked at the creation account and they made up this fictional account. You'll see it's fictional in a moment. But this, this is how they portrayed the event taking place. As God made Eve, he went to Adam and he said, uh, I'm going to make a helper for you. And 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 she's going to rub your back at night, feed you grapes. She'll cook and clean, take care of the kids. You'll never have to do a thing. Just sit around and be the king of your house. And the ladies are saying, that sure does sound like fiction to me, right? Now, Adam said, that sounds great, uh, but how much is it going to cost? And God said, well, it's pretty expensive. It's going to be an arm and a leg. And Adam said, well, how much can I get for a rib? Now, man, God never offered Adam an option. He didn't say, what are you willing to pay? And he doesn't give us an option either about how much love we're willing to show. He defines it for us according to what his son did for us. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. You and I are to be willing to give everything. Now, if you think that cost is too high, I want you to consider for a moment what happens when we neglect our spouses. And I'll illustrate it this way. It's just a, a minor example, but in my house, we have two, two cars. I have an old pickup truck, and my wife has a, has a van. And I predominantly drive the van, and she's usually the one driving. I'm, I'm sorry, I drive the pickup, and she usually drives the van. I like the van, too, but I have a 20-year-old truck that I, I like even more. So as I drive my pickup, what if I were to say, because the van is Kim's car, I hardly ever drive it. I'm not going to take care of it. I'm not going to do the maintenance on it. I'm not going to pay for new tires. I'm not going to worry if something's not working on it. I'm just going to neglect it because, hey, I have my car and she has hers. Well, what's going to happen one day is I'm going to get a phone call. And my wife is going to say, uh, we're sitting here on the side of the highway. The car is just broken down. I've got a van full of kids. And, and we're scared because trucks are whizzing by on the freeway. And what's, what's going to suddenly happen? Is that problem mine? You bet it is. Not only am I worried about the safety of my family, uh, but now I have to drop everything I'm doing, and I have to run right out there, have to rescue my family, then I have to call a tow truck, I have to have the van towed in somewhere, so there's the expense of that, then it's going to have to be paid to be fixed, and there's going to be a whole lot more to be paid when I get home, and she says, you didn't take care of the car, Right? 
And so as I neglect that other part that I can say does not affect me, it's just a tiny illustration of what can happen when we neglect our spouse. The Bible says we're one flesh. And you can say, well, that doesn't touch me. We're separate entities. But as Genesis 2.24, and again, as, as it's repeated in the New Testament in Mark 18.8, 8, God says the husband and the wife become one flesh, and what happens to one happens to the other. If you fail to love her, you, you, you'll find it affects you. Men, it affects you in many areas. One of the areas is that of intimacy. Uh, again, as I talk with couples or with men in particular, they'll sometimes say to me, you know, Roger, my wife is not meeting my physical needs. Uh, I, I desire to, to have more lovemaking in our marriage, and, and it's just not happening. She's, she's not responsive to me. Um, what's going on? And, and what is usually going on that I find with the men is they're neglecting their wives. You see, what happens is they, they you know, suddenly become amorous and, and they're like, well, now's the opportunity. And the wife is like, I'm not, I'm not interested. And the husband is, is saying, what happened? And I said, women are like ovens that you have to preheat, right? Men are like microwaves. Ding, we're ready. <laughs> but, but women are like ovens that have to be preheated. And I'll, and I'll say to this man, I'll say, tell me about two weeks ago. Have you been telling your wife good morning? Have you kissed her goodbye when you leave for work? Do you hug her when you come home? What, what are you doing to show love toward your wife? You see, it's a, it's a preheat cycle, men, that, that happens. Lovemaking for your wife often starts two weeks in advance of the event. And, and you're the microwave where, ding, I'm ready. Now, sometimes I hear from the wife the same thing. My husband's not responsive. Um, you know, I put on a, a nice dress. I tried to show, you know, I was interested and he's not responsive. What happened? Well, ladies, what happened is while your husband may be like a microwave, you can break a microwave. You can unplug it. You can blow a fuse. And the husband has needs as well. Ephesians 5.33 says, wives, respect your husband. And I see times where the wife is not respecting the husband, where she's berating him or, or not showing appreciation for the many things that he's doing to provide for the family or other things. That may be his, his definition of I'm the provider and the security provider, and, and this is what men are supposed to do, and, and you've broken the microwave. And so he's not responsive either. What we find here is God's design. I'm not mentioning intimacy as a way for us to manipulate one another in the relationship. God's goal, as we see here in verses 26 and 27, is to build up, uh, husbands build up your wives and bring about God's purpose in her. And as, as we've seen, it's the same on both sides. What God's saying here is there is a ministry to our spouse and not a manipulation of them. Now, in order to fully minister to our wives as men, one of the things we need to know is what her needs are. Uh, remember last time we talked about how submission shows up three times in the Bible. Do you remember where they are? Ephesians chapter 5, Colossians 3, and 1 Peter 3. And everywhere that there is a call for wives to submit to their husband, there is a parallel set of commands for the husband to love and honor his wife. And there in 1 Peter 3, 7, what it says is, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding manner. That word understanding is the Greek word katanosin. And it's a compound word. Kata means according to, 
and nosen is knowledge. So it literally means husbands, live with your wives according to knowledge. And what that means is you go to school. You go to school on your wife. You learn what her love languages are. You, you learn um, what fills her cup. You, you learn the things that can build her up or tear her down. You're to put in the time and the effort to get to know your wives. And, and what you'll find is that it's a moving target. What, what you thought you figured out 10 years ago changes. It could even be 10 minutes ago it may change. But what it says is we are to live with our wives according to knowledge. I want to show you a comic strip. This is a comic strip called Baby Blues. And in it, you see a wife kind of going through uh, what may be a daily routine for her. I want you to notice the reflective surfaces, how she sees herself. First one, she's carrying a laundry basket, and you see she envisions this old hag in the mirror. The next one, she's vacuuming, and uh, there she is with curlers and a frumpy uh, house coat on. As she's eating, she feels like she's overindulging. And then the last one shows her in the, the grocery store, looking a lot more dispirited and frazzled than she really is. And you'll see that the phone is ringing in her uh, grocery cart. And as she answers the phone, it's her husband. Hi, beautiful. I just called to say I love you. And as she hears those words, notice what it does for her in this last frame of the comic. (laughs) She looks like she's ready to walk the red carpet. She's dressed to the nine. She suddenly has her countenance lifted. She feels beautiful. That's a husband who's living with his wife according to knowledge. Many of you cultivating that in your marriage. Are you learning what your wife needs to hear from you or receive from you? Flowers aren't just for a special occasion. You can pick up uh, a bouquet of uh, carnations at HEB for just a few bucks and stick them in a vase and put them in the bathroom or on the table. And it, and it not just communicates to your, your wife, but your kids see that. Whenever I get my wife flowers, I'll usually get one or two and stick them in a little vase for my girls upstairs too. And they, they love it. My son goes, where's mine? Uh, you know. And so, you know, these are things that you've got, to, you've got to learn your wife. Live with her according to knowledge. Now, man, I'll, I'll let you in on a secret here. Uh, sometimes that means not saying or doing anything. Okay, I've paid some dumb taxes in my marriage that I want to save you from. Uh, One of them was very early in my marriage. Uh, We had only been married just a couple months. I was 23, and we're sitting uh, at home. It's time to go. My wife's not ready yet, and I go into the, the closet there in our little apartment, and I had my little section of clothes about that big, and she had the whole closet with everything else, and she's standing there going, I don't have anything to wear. And I went into man mode, right? I'm standing there looking at everything, and I, what do I do? I start fixing. Oh, well, you pulling this. Oh, well, you got this and this, and this looks great. And, and she's just standing there looking at me like she's doing right now. <laughs> <laughs> she didn't need me to pick out her clothes for her. You know what she needed at that moment? She needed a hug. She, she wasn't feeling good about herself. She just needed me to say, you're beautiful, I love you, um, She just needed me to step away from the ledge and back away after I gave her a hug. (laughs) Husbands, do you love your wives like Christ loved the church? That's part of learning. 
uh, who your wife is and, and what she needs. Now, wives, as we're talking about what, what husbands need to know about you, you need to know about Ephesians 5.33. It says, and let the wife see to it that she respect her husband. And let the wife see to it that she respect her husband. Now, I don't want to shortchange that section. We spent two weeks talking about what husbands are to do for their wives. So what I want to do is save this verse and come back to it next week and spend our time uh, looking at exactly what this means. So what I want to do today is end with a story. It's a, it's a modern-day parable. It was written by a woman named Patricia McGear. And in it, she gives us a picture of what we've been talking about today. She, she says, when I sailed to Kinawata, which was an island in the Pacific, I took along a notebook. And after I got back, it was filled with descriptions of flora and fauna and native customs and costumes. But the only note that still interests me that's in it is a single line that says, Johnny Lingo gave eight cows to Sarita's father. Now, McGear says, I I don't need to have it in writing. I'm reminded every time I see a woman belittling her husband or a wife withering under her husband's scorn, I want to say to them, you need to know why Johnny Lingo paid eight cows to Sarita's father. Now, Johnny Lingo wasn't exactly his name. That's what Shinkin, uh, the proprietor of an inn on the island, called him. Shinkin was from Chicago, and he liked to Americanize the names of the islanders. And she says, uh, Johnny was mentioned by many people in many connections. If I wanted to spend a few days on the neighboring island of Nurabandi, uh, Johnny Lingo could put me up. If I wanted fish, he could show me where the biting was best. If it was pearls that I sought, he could, he could bring me the best and at the best price. The people of Kinawata all spoke, spoke highly of Johnny Lingo, yet when they spoke, they, there was this smile, and the smiles were slightly mocking. Shinken said, get Johnny Lingo to help you find what you want and let him do the bargaining. Johnny knows how to make a deal. And at that moment, a young boy sitting nearby hooted with laughter. Johnny Lingo, he said. What gives, I demanded. Everybody tells me to get in touch with Johnny and then breaks up with laughter. Let me in on the joke. Oh, the people like to laugh, Shinkin said, shrugging. Johnny's the the brightest young man in the islands and for his age, the richest. But if he's all that you, you, you say he is, then what is there to laugh about? Well, only one thing, Shinkin said. Five months ago at Fall Festival, Johnny came to Kinawata and found himself a wife, and he paid her father eight cows. Now, I knew enough about the island customs to be impressed, she said. Two or three cows would buy a fair to Midland wife, four or five a highly satisfactory one. Eight cows, I said. She must have been a beauty that takes your breath away. Well, she's not ugly, he conceded and smiled a little. But the kindest could only call Sarita plain. Sam Carew, her father, was afraid she'd be left on his hands. But then he got eight cows for her. Isn't that extraordinary? It's never been paid before, he said. Well, you could, you could call Johnny's wife plain, he, he followed up. But, but you said she was plain. I said it would be kindest to call her plain. She was skinny. She walked with her shoulders hunched, her head ducked. She was scared of her own shadow. Well, I guess there's just no accounting for love, I replied. True enough, he agreed. 
And that's why the villagers grin when they talk about Johnny. They get special satisfaction from the fact that the sharpest trader in all the islands was bested by dull old Sam Carew. But how? I asked. Well, no one knows, and everyone wonders. All the cousins were urging Sam to ask for three cows and hold out for two until he was sure that Johnny would pay one. Then Johnny came to Sam Carew and said, Father of Sarita, I offer eight cows for your daughter. Eight cows, I murmured. I'd like to meet this Johnny. Well, I wanted fish, I wanted pearls, so the next afternoon I beached my boat at Nurabandi. And as I asked for directions to Johnny's house, I noticed that his name brought no sly smile to the lips of his fellow Nurabandians. And when I met the slim, serious young man, he welcomed me with grace into his home. So I was glad that from his own people, he had respect unmingled with mockery. As we sat at his house, he asked, You come from Kinawata. Do they speak of me there on the island? Oh, they say there's nothing that I would want that you can't help me get. He smiled gently and said, My wife is from Kinawata. Yes, I know. They speak of her. Well, what do they say? What, what, uh, uh, I stammered, the question catching me off balance. They, they told me you were married at festival time. Nothing more, he said, the curve of his lips betraying that he knew there must be more. Well, they also say the marriage settlement was eight cows. I paused and said, they wonder why. They asked that. His eyes lighted with pleasure. Everyone in Kinawata knows about the eight cows, he asked. Yes, I nodded. And in Nurabandi, everyone knows that as well. His chest expanded with satisfaction. All was in forever when they speak of marriage settlements. It will be remembered that Johnny Lingo paid eight cows for Sarita. So that's it, I thought. Vanity. And then I saw her. I watched her enter the room to place flowers on the table. She stood, she stood still just a moment to smile at the young man beside me, and then she went swiftly out again. She was the most beautiful woman I had ever seen. The lift of her shoulders, the tilt of her chin, the sparkle of her eyes, all spelled a pride to which no one could deny her. As my eyes turned from Sarita, I noticed that Johnny was staring at me. He smiled and said, you admire her. She's, she's glorious. But she's not Sarita from Kinawada, I said. Oh, there's only one Sarita. Perhaps she doesn't look the way they say she looked in Kinawata. She doesn't. I heard she was homely. They all make fun of you. They, they all wonder how you let yourself be cheated by Sam Carew. Well, do you think eight cows was too many? He asked with a slight smile. No, but how can she be so different? He then said, do you ever think what it must mean to a woman to know that her husband settled on the lowest price for which she could be bought. And then later, when the women talk, they boast of what their husbands paid for them. One says four cows, maybe six. How does the woman feel who was sold for two or one? This could not happen to my Sarita. Oh, so you did this to make her happy, I said. Oh, I wanted her to be happy, yes. But I wanted more than that. You say that she's different, and that's true. Many things can change a woman. 
Things that happen on the inside, things that happen on the outside. But the thing that matters most is what she thinks about herself. In Kenawata, Sarita believed she was worth nothing. But now she knows she is worth more than any other woman in the islands. Then you wanted to, I began. I wanted to marry Sarita. I loved her and no other woman. But I was close to understanding, but he cut me off and finished softly. I wanted an eight-cow wife. Men, what kind of wife do you want? Or ladies, what kind of husband do you want? Men, if you want an eight-cow wife, God's told us how to have one, to love her, to live with her according to knowledge, to see her as Christ saw her. And ladies, if you want an eight-cow type of husband, God has told you the same thing, how to have one, to treat him with honor and respect. I want us all to remember this morning how much God thought we were worth, worth much more than eight cows. He sent his son Jesus to go to the cross and die for us He thought we were worth enough to give his only begotten son to go to the cross and die in our place to pay the penalty of sin and death to redeem us. If God sees us as worth that much, he calls on us to do the same and see each other as he sees us. Will you join me, please, as we go to the Lord in prayer? Lord God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for what it tells us, first and foremost, about your love for us. How you saw us as being worthy of your only begotten Son. How you, Jesus, saw us as being worthy of giving your life, of being willing to go to the cross and and die in our place. Lord, we are precious and valuable purchased with the blood of the only begotten Son of Jesus Christ, of God the Father, Jesus Christ, the one who died in our place to save us. Lord, would you help us to see who we are, how valuable we are in your eyes. And Lord, as those who are children of yours, having come to faith and being adopted as sons and daughters, would we do as you call us to do as members of the family, to love those in our family well, to be husbands who love our wives as Christ loved the church and died for her. Would ladies love their husbands and honor them as the image bearer of God just as they are? Father, help us to have homes that reflect the beauty of your creation and your design, not only for each other, but so that we can also be the lighthouses in the community that you call us to be for others to see what we have and to say, I want that. I want that in my marriage and in my home. So, Lord, would you help us again today to remember what we're called to do and to be willing to do it. Would we die to ourselves daily and love and honor each other, seeing each other as valuable, just as you died for us. May we die to ourselves. We pray these things in the name of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.